Please take note that episode 10 with Paul Hubert was recorded at the end of 2020 and any references to the previous year uh, was to 2019. We hope that you will enjoy this episode. I'm Nicoline Berger and I'm Jana Vosloer and this is Eret. and welcome to another episode in our second season of Eret. Today we are very excited to welcome our guest Paul Hubert. Paul, I've met you like for one coffee date I think somewhere last year and we spoke a bit about allyship and lots of other things that you were doing so uh, that was still when we could just sit in house and have chats somewhere I feel it was around this time last year so just want to briefly introduce our guest to you um, so Paul is currently studying sociology and philosophy at Stellenbosch University he is the co-founder of and writer for Elizabeth I hope I'm pronouncing Elizabeth yeah. Elizabeth yes yeah. and then he's also the founding member of SDS South Africa you'll have to elaborate and tell us a bit more about that maybe, and then very exciting. This is the first time that we'll have a guest that's also excited about podcasts in the same way as us. <laughs> he is very soon going to be launching his own podcast called Praxis, which is a very cool name. So welcome, Paul. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I think we will talk a bit about pronouns as we go. So first I wanna ask Nicoline. Sure. Um, Nicoline, do you wanna introduce a question for today? Yeah, I also want to say welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. So the question for the day is, what are the implications of the gender abolition movement or post-genderism for feminism today? So we're going to get into all of the details and airing out gender abolition, which Paul is currently looking at in his studies. And I'm going to ask Jana to contextualize the question of today within the feminist movements and the history of feminism. So, like, first of all, uh, and this is just before we give over to Paul, I think Nicolene and I just need to make a disclaimer on this topic. So, I mean, you understand, like, in the feminist movement, there's, like, second-wave feminism and third-wave feminism, and then there's, like, this thing about post-feminism or fourth-wave feminism and we've really seen a lot of internal movements, internal shifts in that but then it's also interesting now and I think this is this is something that has been developing but it's really or in my mind at least this year is the first time that I've personally come across this concept so it's something that I ironically as someone who studied feminism know very little about um, so the idea of when I heard gender abolition or post-genderism like I started getting very excited and I was like what is Gen Z doing today because I feel like it's <laughs> such a, a rich topic at the moment especially because you know there's gender ab abolition and then apparently there's economic abolition and then we also think about this year with the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement in the yes. states where we started seeing prison abolition, prison reform, and we've been hearing this word, abolition, abolition, abolition. Yes. Today, our guest, Paul, is going to help us just air out 
you know, what does gender abolition or abolition in general mean? And maybe Paul, you mm -hmm. can tell us a bit, how does it work? What's the vision? Maybe we can start defining the lines like that we understand the difference between gender and sex. Where does abolition fall in those categories? So yeah, yeah. you Paul. <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It is my utter pleasure. I've been listening to you from the start and I really enjoy, um, especially the episodes where you talk about um, your Afrikaner and white identities and, and the relation of that in this world where we're trying to do good and so on, because I, I also share um, reluctantly the identity of an Afrikaner and a um, white person and also um, allegedly male that's also up there so you know it's 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 a whole bunch of things that's very interesting to think about and, and very important to think about as well so abolition for me refers to making something irrelevant that is I think a, a concept that we have to kind of just start with to make sure that that we don't have any misconceptions later obviously in some cases abolition means getting rid of something that's the the more, more uh, the usual definition uh, however something in other contexts such as specifically in the, in uh, talking about gender abolition it's more accurate to think of it as a making irrelevant so if we think of prison abolition it's to say that uh, we want to get rid of prison and we want to get rid of the police force as it is but in that specific context we, we we have to also specify that it needs to be somehow or the the function that it that, that the police ha, uh, fulfilled up until this point uh, doesn't it doesn't have to be replaced we want to because they there's there's kind of a wound and when we take away the, the police which is trying to be a plaster um, which is bad plaster we need to we still have to deal with that wound and that's also something that we can touch on because how does that my my on the spot ad hoc metaphor how does that translate to to the gender context um, and i also want to situate the abolition in the context of identity so not just gender but all types of identity um, and thinking about what does that mean and then the other thing that i wanted to say in the, in the introduction is or just and what you said in the introduction um yana you said that Oh, what are these Gen Zers doing? But it's very much, uh, it's a very old movement, actually. It's not just something, although it, it seems very new and it seems very topical at the moment. And unfortunately, it is still relevant um, in the same way that, that feminism in general is still relevant. And so in that way, I, I just wanted to, to point out that we are thinking in a very long lineage. I'd like to flatter myself and say that I'm on the, on the bleeding edge of theoretical innovation, but we have a lot of people who have been here before us. Mm. And we're definitely going to see that later on, especially when we're looking at art. And Jana will tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, yes. You're so right. Um, so now that you brought in the term irrelevant, I think there's this really interesting spanner I want to throw in the wheels by asking about pronouns so your pronouns you've shared with us is he him they them and i'm wondering what the significance of pronouns is to the understanding of gender abolition and um it was interesting to me that you said make something irrelevant because in a way we can see that the movement around making your pronouns relevant is also a way of 
kind of subverting gender in a way as well. So how do you bring those things together, the, the relevance of pronouns and the irrelevance of gender? Well, that's a very interesting perspective that I really haven't thought about bringing those two together. But obviously, pronouns are something that we've been thinking a lot about these past few years, especially when a large part of online feminism and, and, and especially queer activism, queer rights activism, has started this movement or started asking people to to declare their pronouns up front and to, to say, please address me as such. My gender is this, please treat me as such. And that is also a very important thing. And I think maybe this can lead us into talking about Judith Butler. But before we get there, I wanted to say about my pronouns, the they, them is neutral. That's the, the idea with the they, them. So I, I wanted to throw the spanner back at you and say that what is becoming, what gender abolition would, would want to make irrelevant is the, the he or the she, but not the pronouns in themselves, but the categorization, the binary mm. of that. Yeah, I know that's very interesting because I think what it's starting to show us is how deeply the understanding of the binary that you've just spoken of is part of our language and by addressing the problem of the binary we have to address the language and it's this almost mm. slow unlearning that is starting to happen of where we are inviting new terms and new ways of speaking into the way of referring to a person so that we can change our language so that we can change the ideas around the language and I mean, just uh, one last note on pronouns um, is that what I've noticed now that, for example, the company that I worked for, like everyone has in their email signature already their pronouns. And it's something that we've also seen happening, I guess, quite slowly, but it is happening at Stellenbosch University where even just for people to, ident to identify their gender. So it's almost more just recognizing the fact that you have space to identify yourself as whatever you identify as and even though at the company almost like a certain percentage would just stick to the very like cis understanding of gender where they are still like he or she it still like brings in that awareness um, and it's the same with the x that we've seen in how we write women it annoys me so much when the whole missus thing of indicating that, uh, and you don't get that with male pronouns. So it's only Mr. And then it's Ms. or Mrs. Um, and I just like on my bank card, it says Mrs. And it annoys me so much. So it's, there is something to be said for how, as Nicolene said, language can help us change, help us make, like become aware. And then to hear how you said, Paul, but that's actually a way of also trivializing it or making it, yeah, I'm interested, like, how do you understand the word irrelevant? Maybe you can expand a bit on that. So with the word irrelevant, specifically, I mean, uh, it has no effect on, on people and it, it is not useful. It is not useful in the world and thus, and, and I mean useful to people, for people. So, and then thus they choose to not use it. So that's the that's the idea what I mean with irrelevant. But I, I guess it's at this point that I that I have to just be very specific and say that the theoretical basis that I'm kind of working in the, the theoretical lineage is 
the most the most recent manifestation of that is perhaps the xenofeminist movement and xenofeminism is, feminism is a very interesting and exciting thing and it draws upon a lot of a lot of feminist texts and not exactly only feminist texts as well and to answer the question uh, i i want to uh, read you just this short quote from Helen Hester, who is, she is part of the uh, Laboria Cubonics Collective, who published the Xenofeminist Manifesto, and she published uh, the book um, Xenofeminism. Uh, on page 30, she talks about gender abolition, and specifically, um, she says, Xenofeminism is not a call for gender austerity, but for gender post-scarcity. It does not seek the eradication of what are currently considered gender traits from the human population. It is the restrictions upon gendered identity that we want to see scrapped. The tenacious binary thinking that continues to funnel identities into male and female, feminine and masculine, despite the obvious paucity of this model. Far from producing a genderless world then, this form of abolition uh, through proliferation is suggestive of a multiply gendered world. Um, and so that is, I think, a central concept in gender abolition. Or, identity abolition in general is that through the proliferation of gender and gender traits, we, um, we subvert the concept itself. In that way, it becomes a useless concept. This is where the idea of irrelevance comes in, because if the, the concept has been so diffused through the proliferation of, of genders and gender traits, then the concept becomes useless and it falls out of our common conception and it becomes a relic of history. Mm. Um, so in that way, I think is that's kind of the central thing of, of the way that I think of gender abolition. Yeah, and I mean, we, we've spoken in our other episodes also of the very clear boundaries that is drawn around what it means to be a male, what it means to be a female. And these kind of very clear rules are what maintains so many other social structures. So what is interesting, like Jana said earlier, when we're talking about abolition, there's all of these different levels that come in when you consider gender, like how gender plays out in class division and how it maintains class structures. And essentially also in the episode that you mentioned, in season one where we spoke about Afrikaner femininity where we see this freeing up of the, the, the male's time through keeping the woman busy with all the domestic tasks and then males traditionally have been able to then function in an entirely different way in society than females where if like you say, now there are so many genders that there's no boxes for people to fit in. Those kind of structures starts to crumble because who is then who is then designated to the domestic space or who is designated to more traditionally male spaces? So this is also where what we discussed in our planning comes in the question of how one ends an oppression and then keeps the identity resulting from it. You know, like how do we find these structures and then also produce new identities and new spaces for people to fill in and and I just wanted to, to say regarding those those new new spaces continuing on the on the quote that I, I read earlier 
Helen Hester also says that this must go beyond insisting on a recognition of a wider range of identity categories, a move which, as with the numerous self-categorization options available to us on Facebook, can generate a plural but static constellation in which gender continues to bear the weight of signifying something beyond itself. The aim of this proliferation is not the beautiful blooming of a hundred drop-down boxes, but the stripping away of social ramifications associated with the heterosexual matrix. Xenofeminism stresses the need to render gender laughable and obsolete in its frigidity and instrumentality, and that render gender laughably, laughable and obsolete in its frigidity and instrumentality. That is a quote from um, Sub Rosa, um, which is a, a feminist collective, um, in their useless gender, an immodest proposal for radical justice. So here is where I have another um, idea. So a friend of mine was very troubled by the idea of gender abolition because it sounded as if uh, we, are, we are forcing people to reject those categories. And that's also very troubling because not all people who have oppressed or historically oppressed categories have the, the opportunity and the, the material circumstances to be able to reject those labels. But instead, it's a dual motion. The first motion is the, is the rejection of categorization because categorization is not a voluntary thing. It is something that is done to you. So um, if we use the Althusserian term, you are hailed by society as, as if you are hailing it in the, in the sense of hailing a taxi. You are asked by society and asked in a very forceful way to be a certain way, to function a certain way and to act, etc., to be a gender in society. And of course you can reject that hailing, but then the society will uh, come down upon you with the full force of all its institutions. So the way that gender can be abolished is by, for those that can reject the categorization and for those that, that don't, or that those who want to keep onto the, the terms and certain associations with that category to disrupt it from the inside almost. So if gender is some sort of sphere, you can simultaneously pull it apart from the outside and push from the inside out and, and thus this thin membrane of what, can, what is considered gender can be ripped apart by that dual motion. That's so fascinating. I mean, thank you also for reading from those texts, because I think that definitely expressed something that I couldn't articulate before. And I, I love that saying of like, it's not just this beautiful accumulation of a drop down list, because I mean, at the end of the day, people crave the drop down and it's, it's part mm. of so even if it's not just a drop down of two, like of the binary, there's still this impulse for categorization. And as you said with that confusion of your friend, I mean, you, you do hear a lot of people at first impulse be like, you know, what is happening today with identity? And now there's just like, people are just choosing all these identities and it, it bothers people this, or some people, I guess. Not that that, not that that outweighs how it must bother people who just want to express themselves freely. So there is like this theme of the impulse to categorize 
and then how I understand that gender abolition is is saying that is also the thing that we should abolish is this need, mm. if I'm understanding it correctly, is this need to want to categorize, but also pretend that these categories are meaningful in ways that they might not be. And then also I like your point about, it's that performativity point, I guess, once again, that we also always come back in, that we cannot isolate the way that we are formed while we are trying to act. And that in that way, it's, it's interesting to start then thinking, is, is abolition also then a discourse that we start to perform? in the same way that we think about gender performativity or that we think about yeah, just identity expression more generally? Or is the way of thinking about abolition to try and also subvert that narrative? So how do you understand, I guess my question is, power dynamics and gender abolition working with each other? And how do you think gender abolition is this discussing it in a different way than what the feminist movement in terms of something like gender performativity has done up until now. That's a, a fascinating question. Can you, can you say a bit more or can you like... I guess I'm also trying to think gender fluidity versus gender abolition. So if you have these ways that we act gender and we understand that society and power is at play in whatever way we act it, so that's something that feminists have acknowledged up until this point and kind of conceded on in general that, you know, we are constantly, as you said, subverting, pushing the boundaries of that. But is gender, that gender abolition movement and like xenofeminism, is that, is that going beyond just gender performativity or the understanding that gender is constructed and with power and that we can subvert it? It feels like they are saying something different but I'm trying to understand what the difference is. Yeah, that, that is a, a fascinating question. Um, and and I, I'm not sure what the, what the Xenofeminist position is on that. But so if we, if we look at what, what Judith Butler characterizes gender to be, is they say that when performing gender, we are all trying to fit into some mold that is almost ineffable to us. Gender is not, it, there's no constitution of gender that determines everything that gender must be. So we are all constantly anxious about, am I fitting into this? And am I, am I doing gender correctly as it is expected of me? And so in a certain sense, the, the call for gender abolition is to say no, to get rid of that anxiety and say that no, do it as you please, to get rid of the, the imperative that we must try and do some gender thing that, that, that we ultimately can't. But then what is a bit troubling then again is Judith Butler's where they point out that we, we cannot exit the symbolic structure of gender. There is no there's no outside of it. You can only be pushed into something else. Um, and so th and that is a, a problematic that, that I think we can, we can sit with or, or we can say, okay, we, we don't know. Um, but that's also relevant for, for all other identities as well. Is it possible to be anything in this world adequately? Or is it possible to, to escape? any type of identity is it possible to partake in a language or in a symbolic structure in a symbolic discourse adequately is is it possible at all at a fundamental level i don't know judith butler i think says no 
And the question then becomes, if we cannot escape the language that, and the symbolic discourse that constitutes a gender or gender as a concept, can we push it to something else? Can we remold it to be freeing? And maybe this is just because I, I have this very universalist tendency and, and I think in the Xenofeminist Manifesto, they also say something about that. But I, I think that there is a way of, of overcoming the limitations. That's kind of what I have to say about that. I have a, another quote here um, from the manifesto, the Xenofeminist Manifesto. In the PDF, you can download from laboriacubonics.net on page six um, or section OXOE. Um, it says, the summary of why they are gender abolitionist. And in the next section, um, well, it's not O's, it's zeros, um, zero X zero F, um, they say, xenofeminism understands that the viability of emancipatory abolitionist projects, the abolition of class, gender, and race, hinges on a profound reworking of the universal. The universal must be grasped as generic, which is to say intersectional. Intersectionality is not the morselation of collectives into a static fuzz of cross-referenced identities, but a political orientation that slices through every particular, refusing the crass pigeonholing of bodies. This is not a universal that can be imposed from above, but built from the bottom up, or better, laterally, opening new lines of transit across an uneven landscape. This non-absolute generic universality must guard against the facile tendency of conflation with bloated unmarked particulars, namely Eurocentric universalism, whereby the male is mistaken for the sexless, the white for the raceless, the cis for the real, and so on. Absent such a universal, the abolition of class will remain a bourgeois fantasy, the abolition of race will remain a tacit white supremacism, and the abolition of gender will remain a thinly veiled misogyny. Even especially when prosecuted by avowed feminists themselves. The absurd and reckless spectacle of so many self-proclaimed gender abolitionists who campaign against trans women is proof enough of this. Um, you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I want to clap hands. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly, I also want to clap hands. It, yeah, that, this is what I mean by saying that xenofeminism is, is it, it's extremely exciting. Can I ask you a question before you read the next one? Because I feel yes. like it's something I want to ask you now because you raise such a important question. Like firstly, the, you know, just a bit of the internal feminist criticism coming out there, but then also the connection between gender abolition and the transgender movement is something that I also mm. discuss. And, and, you know, are there... Because I also saw an article that said almost is certain gender abolition movements transphobic? And I thought that was quite interesting to explore. So I don't know if maybe you can, if you have some ideas like what in that quote that she spoke about, I can't remember the exact wording of, you know, the, the relationship between the transgender movement and the gender abolition movement. Um, because I'm sure that will also expose some interesting questions. So the, the question of, of what the relationship between transgenders and, and I, I mean that in a, I'm referring to the genders, genders that are trans, um, have to do with um, the, firstly, the, the Butlerian analysis of gender, but also 
the, the gender abolitionist um, thought is very fraught with conflict. Um, from the beginning, a lot of transgender people have had problems with, with Judith Butler's characterization of gender. But I think that they, and, and of course, a lot of um, so-called gender critical feminists say that, well, okay, that's a whole story. Um, the TERFs um, or trans-exclusionary radical feminists have a very contradictory position on things because they they simultaneously are they claim to be very critical of the concept of gender and want to make the concept of gender irrelevant but at the same time they also they claim that women are, are oppressed because of their physical anatomy and in that way they re-essentialize the concept of gender and and they they actually they deny the existence of the concept of gender and that is not something that i think a, a trans feminism does is it says that gender does exist it, it is perhaps it is a social construction but like money which is also a social construction it has very real effects and and this is not even getting to um, judith butler's uh, critique of the concept of sex and how they point out that the the concept of sex is not a binary either. The sex bifurcation between male and female is also a social construction um, and that the, the construction of gender actually created the construction of sex. Um, and uh, a very easy example we can think of um, is, for example, we can point out to the fact that we knew about genders before we knew about, say, all the physical characterizations, characterizations such as chromosomes, testosterone and, and estrogen and so on. And even if we then look at, uh, if we point at quote unquote easily um, distinguishable features such as um, exterior anatomy, um, we can point out to the fact that intersex people, meaning people who don't fit easily into the category of male and female, are almost as common as, or about as common as people with red hair or people with green eyes if we might be intersex because when was the last time you checked your testosterone levels or your chromosomes so <laughs> that i think sums up my position on, on that so what i think the the gender quote-unquote gender critical feminists miss is the the second movement of my well, okay, they miss a lot of things, but one of the things that they miss is is the the dual movement. Is the one is pulling it apart from the outside, but also the the pushing it from the inside. And the pushing from the inside can take place in various ways. Um, I would say that transgender people already they are doing pushing from the inside, even though they um, they might be completely one hundred percent women. Or man, even if they do conform to what our external experience of the woman or man might be, is they still uh, trouble our association with gender, with sex, because they are transgender. So even yeah. by the virtue of the existence, they trouble our concept of gender. Yeah. Yeah. And are and are thus doing the, the internal movement. Yeah. I mean, the internal pushing and changing something from the inside and from the outside is a really nice metaphor for me to also um, use because I was thinking about 
um, if if we look at history and we're try if we're trying to change the thinking the thinking of a collective, um, history shows us that that was often done by creating something other that it can change to or can change from. You know that there mm. is this categorization that happens if we look at race and like that quote says it so perfectly that race is then just like this thing that was constructed by um, white supremacy, you know, like it's, it's almost like the white is raceless in, and in order to push the other who's then black out, you know, there's this polarization mm. in moving and in changing things. And, and this interesting question popped up to me is that if there is no specific thing that it is changing to, like you said, like what is the specific thing that it's changing to? How do you shape the collective thinking around that thing if everything that it's changing to is so ambiguous and open-ended? And that's where the inward movement comes in for me, like you say, where a trans person is already subverting the idea of gender by just going through that inward analyzing of what they want to claim for themselves mm -hmm. for their identity and what they don't want to. Because for so many people, gender is an assumption. It's not a critical engagement. So the inward thinking then starts by creating a movement for people to be able to start imagining what it is that they want in terms of gender orientation or not. So it's, it's an interesting, open, like you say, it's intersectional, you know, it touches on everything in life because it's, it's, it's essentially creating an opening in society for people to reimagine, but not giving them something to imagine too, which in the past we did. We were like, this is the ideal, go towards that. And, that, and now there's nothing like that. It's kind of just open. <laughs> I was Exactly, exactly. Like as Nicolene was speaking now, I was thinking earlier this week I was involved in an intensive rant about gender reveal parties. Um, in terms oh, Because <laughs> I was, I mean, my social media is just infiltrated by it. And you see, it's like a big, you know, Instagram show of like blue. It's so extravagant. Like, I don't even know how you make those like blue air or pink air coming out of like, I don't know what. And it's it's obviously a trend still, like a lot of young people, and I'm talking like my age, like 25, having children, still having this very intense need to do the pink, blue gender reveal. And what I was thinking now, interestingly, is that perhaps the idea of revealing gender is not as problematic in itself. So if I use the word reveal to talk about almost this so yes, it is. there's that irrelevant idea, but it's also something that, because it's so irrelevant, it's something that you can reveal to yourself over time. So I can, as I grow up and form my identity and obviously engage with all these power structure, structures, it can be revealed to me how I want to position my own gender because it's not innate. So obviously it has to be, you know, it has to come over time and it's, uh, it's something that can develop. But yet we find that it, it's once again that drop down box thing and that need to do that. Um, so maybe I'm circling a bit around that, but I'm thinking maybe this is a good time to go into our cultural text uh, for this episode, because while I was talking about revealing, I was thinking about this text of, you know, changing constantly, internally, swifting, and how that can then also reveal 
the underlying ideas that we have about gender and sh shift it and in that way maybe partake in what could be called gender abolition. So, Nicolene, mm. you know, Before you do that, I, I just wanted to, to catch on to, to what you were talking about. Um, and I, I really like the point that you're making about the gender reveals and that it, it's not necessarily the, the revealing of the gender that is the, the problem. The problem is that it is non-consensual. The problem is that the child, um, or in, in many cases, the unborn fetus, has no say about the gender and that gender manifests in an expectation. It is, it is not um, an, an internal, it's not in any way, yeah, it's not leaving room for, for that, for the internal examination. It is, it is a forceful expectation of someone. And then the, I think this also relates to, or also something that I wanted to say earlier, is also we we uh, haven't spoken about the idea of affirmative action yet, and and for me, um, I just wanted to to point out that a lot of people say, but but if we get rid of the categories of gender, how will we how will we then know um, or then even start to do a restoration um, for people previously um, or still affected or oppressed by gender or race or whatever categorization. And I'm not entirely sure, but something that I personally have started to do is every time I mention race or gender in a text, I put it in quotation marks, just to point out the, the social constructive nature of it, to de-essentialize, or if we, if we want to ask on a form for people to, to put their gender or whatever, we can say, um, um, and this also makes it easy to 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 escape this this uh, proliferation of, of drop down box options um, is to to ask were you previously known as or formerly gendered as or formerly racialized as in that way we can then try and and still have those statistics about how far we have come hopefully in helping people or ourselves escaping from those categories without reaffirming or re-essentializing them. Mm. I think that's a very important point and a very like critical piece that you put in there that's very important, like you say, not to overlook the affirmative action part of the argument and just be like, we're gonna, we're gonna just scrap it all. And, and I'm gonna go over into the cultural text now, but I want to, do it with a little bit of a meander <laughs> through the cyborg um, art and the, and the cyborg mm. manifesto that you sent us because I think it's a really, really interesting piece to introduce here when we're going to be talking about the French artist Orlan's work. Um, and you shared with us this um, cyborg manifesto and the three things that was quite interesting to me, the kind of leaks of how we are already cyborg. It's very interesting mm. to me where the argument is that um, maybe gender and race and those kind of categories don't apply to us um, 
anymore at all because we are already kind of cyborg, which is a very interesting argument. And the way that we are cyborg is by these three, um, these three things, these three leaks of like the animal and human leak where we know we are animal and human and we are not separate from the animals and our organism and machine kind of uh, blurring of the lines between that where our machines are now functioning in the world outside of us and becoming these extensions of us and we are becoming more stationary as organisms and kind of settling down and then this idea of the physical and the non-physical blurring of the lines where our our technology is also physical things but it creates non-physical things like the cloud and the internet so what is interesting to me about this all is that um, if we are thinking of ourselves as kind of already cyborgs, then there are parts of us that are not gendered. So my cell phone is an extension of me in certain actions, but my cell phone is mm. gendered. So if, if we're thinking in that way, we're also kind of already thinking past it and, and considering ourselves outside this. And this is where Orland's work comes in, where she is constantly changing and morphing, like Jana said, her, her physical appearance um, as a way to subvert the way that she is categorized or received, or like you say, hailed by society. She is not placeable. And she mixes this with mixing the boundaries between animal and human form, um, machine and human form, and also this physical and non-physical, almost like this personalities that are created or characters that are created outside of, of, of the artworks that she creates. So all of that's very interesting. And maybe you can also expand on the idea of, of how cyborg um, manifesto comes in with the xenofeminism manifesto within your thinking. Yeah, the, the cyborg um, has always been a very interesting image for me. Um, I, I have, I've always been very into um, sci-fi and the cyborg is, is a well-known image as, as Donna Haraway uh, writes in the in the manifesto it is a it's a well-known image and so just um, to quote from the manifesto um, a cyborg is a cybernetic organism it's a hybrid of machine and organism a creature of social reality as well as a creature of fiction um, and if you'll humor me um, I just want to go on on a slight digression on I mean it's relevant but so cybernetic we have this idea that cybernetic means um, something to do with computers or something, but cybernetics, it refers to the study of flow and control structures and feedback loops and mechanisms. Um, and you, you can implement that study in many different fields. And one of the first cyberneticians, uh, Norbert Wiener, started implementing and developing the idea of, of cybernetics um, in, in military and and to in order to create a better anti-aircraft gun i think but then he uh went on and, and wrote a quite quite socialist text actually um which which kind of breaks him from that military background but that just as an aside so so cybernetic does it obviously it, it kind of tangentially relates to to networks but the idea the core idea that i find very interesting is that comes from the the greek for uh, or the ancient greek for steersman it is someone who steers say a ship and 
and to, to think about things in a cybernetic way is we get rid of authoritarianism, but still somehow get to keep our course. We can still try and direct a ship um, because a authoritarian approach to steering a ship would be to try and know and control the location of every single molecule in the ocean upon which you are sailing. And that is firstly impossible, but secondly, it has these authoritarian, totalitarian effects if we are applying this metaphor to, to society. Cybernetics and cybernetic management, it, it gives us the tools to, to think about steering without control, without control extending. And it is about the interaction between independent and autonomous uh, pods. And I think to relate this back to, to the idea of identity is as soon as we can use this to characterize ourselves as cybernetic organisms, um, because, and, and this is not a strong current in, in the manifesto and Donna Haraway's um, manifesto, but this is my thinking of the cyborg, is if we conceive of ourselves as cyborgs, we realize that we are pushing and pulling from and to our environment, uh, but all, uh, already in such a way where the boundaries between us and our environment are not so clear. But all we can do is we can send a bunch of, say, and this is what happens um, with communication between, say, trees in a forest, is they use a rhizomatic network of fungi, of, a, of sometimes one single fungus stretching between the trees as they send chemicals down the fungus and to try and influence the other tree and then the other tree sends back a different chemical or and so it's through these signs and ways that we can we can try and interact with our world and i think that with our identities it were it's the same so with with my um, appearance i can send you a signal with my language i can send you a signal i can ask you in order to try and influence your behavior towards me in my own favor, I can ask you to refer to me or treat me differently. And, and you can, can reciprocate with a different sign or send a clinical response and so on. So in that way, we, we, we retain our independence and our autonomy while having a sense of direction. Um, so that is, that is kind of my thinking around cyborgs and, and we can try and think of a, a almost cybernetic ontology um, between the interaction of, of different things and, and the different subsections of an organism. Um, what are the boundary breakdowns that we can think about is the boundary between ourselves and our environment because our conception of us being a a single organism is is a, an illusion because the human cannot survive without our um, gut bacteria, for example. Um, they, so there is not a very clear differentiation between us and our gut bacteria. There's also not a very clear differentiation between us and the, the environment that we survive in because we cannot survive without the environment, we cannot survive without that so that troubles then the distinction for an, of an organism as something that can survive um, because some organisms they they outsource 
so to speak, their metabolism. We do that with, with fire, by cooking, we outsource metabolism. There's, there's not a clear distinction between us and, and the world. To make the connection or to bring the connection home between, so if we think about ourselves now, with what you just mentioned, as, cy as cyborg or as Nicoline said, already cyborg uh, in, in the ways uh, that Haraway also explicates, what is, how do you see, because I'm thinking of like there's these artists, also the cyborg artists, and I watched like a brief YouTube video on them. Uh, I watched a talk at the Design and Daba of the two that Yana found, um, and they came yeah, to the Design and Daba. So this guy has this plant, implant um, antenna, and uh, I think the woman makes, I can't remember, does she make music with her hands, or there's a sensor or something, I can't remember, but it's like planted into her body to make yeah. a rhythm or something. And it was very interesting, um, this experience. So they, yeah, mm. I can't even imagine like seeing it in real life, but I mean, the names Neil Harbison and Moon Reba. So they, um, mm. they talk about how, almost similar to you mentioned, like by not just using technology as a tool separate from you, or um, I mean, even your phone, like we said, it's, it's an extension of you, but, it's not, I mean, I mean, that's debatable. Are you, is it an extension or is, is it part of you? That's, that's, a, that's a podcast for another day. But if we just, yeah. the fact that there's something to physically implant, uh, you know, an antenna and that, and that alters the way you see the world. And it's not using technology as a tool, but becoming, but morphing with technology as to completely that you are, yeah. I am, and that's how you said from an ontological perspective, you are now becoming this mixture yeah. to the point where human and technology cannot be separated from one another. And my question, I guess, is then, so if we think about ourselves as cyborg in that way, can we just bring home gender abolition and being a cyborg? Uh, so how does being a cyborg speak to gender abolition? So I'm, I'm going to... to put the, the thing that is the most uh, exciting first, even though it's kind of secondary, um, which is, um, and, and the Xenofeminist manifesto uh, or Xenofeminism identifies itself as a techno-materialism. And it is, it, it claims, uh, or it, it wants to reclaim science and rationality and, and technology and so on. And that draws again then from Shulamith Firestone, um, who pointed out that that the the oppression of women, even though it's not it's not so it's not constituted by biological oppression, is largely it largely manifests because of biological features. But um, for me, what is very exciting about xenofeminism, it, it it uses this idea of the cyborg to say that we can change the nature of, of biology. And so this, the, the Xenofeminist Manifesto ends with the, with the instruction that if nature is unjust, change nature. And so in the way that we can connect gender uh, and gender abolition with the, the idea of the cyborg is by saying, um, just like we can implant things into our heads and fingers and so on for artistic reasons we can do the same for for emancipatory reasons for reasons of comfort for reasons of pleasure 
and and examples of that for example includes the outsourcing of gestation of a fetus to a machine so yeah for example an, an external womb or for example engineering the the pain out of menstruation and and all these things that that are uncomfortable for example also we can think of trying to to re-engineer for example the human spine which is notoriously if you look at it from a design perspective a lot of people have have remarked that if it was designed it, it was very badly designed because it's it wasn't made for upright walking it was made for four four-footed walking and so us being bipedal organisms poses a lot of problems for that and so that that is a problem that that because we have a, a, a kind of a sapiens as a species we can we can become cyborgs in the sense of liberating ourselves from our biological chains and the reason why this connects with gender is specifically because of the, the biological manifestations of gender oppression that women face and that is i think the the more glamorous aspect of integrating the cyborg and and identity but the more kind of perhaps theoretically straightforward way is is what i explained with the the cybernetic interaction way of thinking that the the phone that i'm using to talk to you to the application the software the code that i'm using to talk to you um, is not separate from me it is an extension of me and you are not separate from me you are an extension of me and i'm an extension of you also more importantly and i can send signals from this part of the universe to that part of the universe and try and, and communicate and for me that that is kind of the way that thinking in cyborg terms that clearly influences the way that we conceive of identities and this obviously relates to what a lot of other people have already said um going back to hegel hegel's the social constitution of of our identity um where if if you were to live without other humans you would not have a sense of of separation from them um you would only have a separation from inanimate objects so you would have no sense of self no sense of well this is this is me thinking now you you would not have any sense of individuality you would only be an organism living um and interacting with its environment but because we have other people who seem to to show agency we have to we are kind of faced with this this radical strangeness this this kind of othering yeah exactly it's it's this othering that that we have to cope with and this is where conceiving in cyborg terms about this relationship can can help us think about identities in in new ways um in, in perhaps more freeing ways i want to tell you guys something and we can decide if we want to leave it in the episode because I actually have such an interesting experiment that you can do to perceive just that, what you said, that we are not separate from you, you are not separate from us, but what separates us is this kind of lens that we have. And mm. the, the technique is called headlessness, as headlessness meditation, where you 
if you had to imagine where you as a conscious agent is in your body, most people would place themselves behind their eyes, right? So think of where's Paul, Yana and Paul sits behind the eyes, right? And it's almost like this kind of frame that you look out to the world. So now while you are looking at us, you can practice this by just looking at the window. So where, where Yana is, if you turn that around and you try to look at Yana, there's nothing. You can't look back through the window. You can only look out of the window to the world. So if you kind of zoom your eyes and you look at this window, you see that all that you are, there where you imagine you are, is a place for the world. So this, you see, it's this very weird idea that, that you as a self doesn't exist. It's only the window that you're looking out through the world. But if you then understand that that window is sometimes tinted with different filters, you know? So if you have a gender binary filter over your window, then what I am perceiving out of my window is a Paul that is male and a Yana that is female. Because my tinted window has, there's like a, something that is um, influencing my frame of the world. And then if you understand that, then you understand that every single person and version has a different window with a different tint or a different frame, which is what we often introduce in the beginning of our podcast. Like we say, we position ourselves. And even within this conversation, we continually position ourselves so people can understand our frame that we're looking out at. But that is denied most of the time that everyone sees something different. So that kind of communication that you were talking about between the trees and understanding this kind of cyborg communication back and forth is to me kind of establishing those different frames and understanding. And it, it's again, this, the conversation is now coming back to the opening it up and making it intersexual and making almost like a generic universal, like you said, where we are allowing everyone to kind of state their position and then we are interacting with them from that position that they're stating, which is going against the current system that we have where there is a, a, a pre-set up um, category and you are assigned a gender. Um, but that, that headlessness exercise is just always very interesting for me to play with where I realize mm. that, that idea of, of there is no differentiation between me and you. Yeah, yeah um, I would just like to, to throw a spanner at you again, um, where you mentioned these filters. And, and again, I think this is where Judith Butler and also notably, uh, famously, Slavoj Žižek comes in. So Slavoj Žižek points out that the filter is not, um, is not the, the adulteration or the perversion of some neutral way of looking at the world the filter must is must actually be the idea ideological critique um, and, and um, famously uses the example of the movies they live um, where the glasses allow um, the the protagonist to see the the quote-unquote secret messages um, that appear in in the form of advertisements and and so on, where where when you look through the glasses at a at a billboard, it says consume 
Uh, and if you look at money, it says, this is your God. And that's all very dramatic and so on, but, but it's, it's, a, it's the glasses, it's the ideolo ideology critique that allows you to see that the gender binary that you have internal, that if you take the glasses off, everything seems gendered. It's the glasses, that you, the filter that you put on that allow you to, to break that, to, 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 to see. So it's like normal glasses as well. If I take off my glasses, um, everything is blurry. And if I put them on, everything becomes more clear because now I'm critiquing this blurred, inherent um, vision that I have. Yeah. So that's that's kind of a, a digression, but but I think it's important that that the reason why I put Judith Butler and Zizek both together here is because um, Butler uh, points out that uh, there is no biological reality or biological essence that then becomes gendered. There is no unified reality that then is split up into genders. And there's also, um, there's no outside of the symbolic structure. We only have, we only have that in which we live. We cannot get out of it, mm -hmm. but we can push it away from us. So this is what, what I then say is we can, we can refuse to be hailed as a, a gender, but we can also perhaps at be the same person at different times can also say okay fine I'll, I'll be a woman but I'll do it in a way that that you didn't expect me to yeah and I like that we've with both the examples that Nicoline and you Paul have now used it's like it's interesting the double uh, reading <laughs> if you excuse my pun of the glass yeah, yeah, yeah. or the filter of on the one hand it's I mean, from Nicolene's point, more the relativist thing of different experiences and all that. So you are already framed in, in your way of understanding it by, or we are framed to, um, to see things in a certain way, but also by having the tools to see clearer through ideological critique, through understanding these concepts, through, through learning, we can diagnose uh, kind of the filters or the this this ways mm. in which our lenses are skewed perhaps that brings us to an interesting way or where you also started talking about you know how you can in very practical subtle ways start so i, I always wonder if we start wrapping up our conversation and obviously we can still add a lot more but how how do we in our everyday lives go about abolishing gender what are, maybe we can talk about and brainstorm some examples. And I think the cultural yeah. text online gives us a clue. I wanna, I wanna just bring that in now because I, I watched this video where Orlan speaks about why she changed herself. So um, like, I think the one of the main kind of concepts that's part of our conversation is this idea of agency and being able to decide and being able to communicate and being able to morph and and be outside of the box and kind of to be able to push from the inside out and um, Orlan says that she creates difference as a way to accept difference and that was really interesting to me where and, and it's kind of what you said in the beginning with xenofeminism manifesto of creating this flood of of opening 
and not just different drop-down boxes, but creating differentiation within ourselves and within our communities and encouraging differentiation as a way of accepting difference, to me, is one idea of how I can imagine that gender abolition can be practiced, is to, to create differentiation of these categories and to create um, as many as, and I mean, Orlan is an example of multiple identities flowing out of her and she also takes different identities from different people and then she creates characters and morphs herself with these characters almost kind of like collapsing this collective identity within one body which is also very interesting and it's it's also i mean it's interesting if i think about on social media what i cons visually consume as my reference for what gender fluidity or gender, the spectrum of gender performativity looks like. The, the type of public figures, like I'm thinking of, um, what's his name, Alok Vernon or something like that. Uh, I'll have to go check his name, but, oh, well, now I said he. <laughs> but it's just interesting, that thing where we, we can imagine these vibrant mixes of someone with like a full hair of chest with like bright neon lipstick and earrings and and it's it's that that identity expression uh and you see with like uh orlan that has i think 12 times had a plastic surgery so there's this idea of exterior modification or mm. experience exterior expression is the point I'm getting at where our associations would for you to be binary or fluid or abolish gender you have to visually show it uh, oh I mean that's that's the normative assumption that I'm trying to point out is that what does it look like um, and I mean talking about Judith Butler I mean she her way of doing that is just by stand wearing very standard black clothes all the time Every, every individual that you think about in terms of how they express themselves, it's, there's for me a very visual um, understanding and I'm trying to also imagine, can we imagine non-visual ways of abolishing gender as well, where I'm trying language to, language is the one and, and then also, I guess, refusing to, as you said, refusing to buy into certain stereotypes or expectations. Whether or not it is intended as such, being a visibly non-binary person um, or, or having a non-binary gender expression or appearance is almost a, a type of agitprop because you, you are signaling to the world, even though um, obviously a lot of non-binary people just want to go about their, their daily business and, and not be bothered by people, they, they don't necessarily want to be political subjects always, um, but for better or for worse, being a, a visual, a visually uh, or in appearance, being someone who is visibly transgressing on those norms is for better or for worse, agitprop. It is a kind of pushing the people who look at you and, and then struggle to categorize. Um, it, it is invoking in them the awareness and then of course sometimes that awareness can can result in in backlash and, and saying no you do not fit my conceptions and that is your fault but that 
the opposite, which is the, the reaction we want, the reaction we want is to say, oh, my conceptual gender was not, was, was founded on something that is not real um, or not accurate. Um, that is also predicated on, on awareness. So um, I think that can also come across through the, the rest of the symbolic realm or the symbolic structures um, in language, the way we communicate with other people. Um, but then the other side is the inside. So on the inside, we can, we can start um, thinking of people. We can try and, and, and mm, try and practice to think about people in non-gendered ways, which is incredibly difficult, difficult because we have no, we have no basis for that um, in society um, and, to, and to try and like maybe trouble that, trouble our, our gendered expectations. Um, and, but unfortunately it, it is kind of one of those things that unless we, we try and, uh, unless we can subvert the, the reasons for the gender binary, racialization, et cetera, et cetera, we, we cannot get rid of those. So, so we have to have this, again, this dual movement of trying to, to destroy the, the concept itself, but also then the basis on which it is, it is focused or, well, speaking of, of a basis and superstructure is not entirely accurate, but, but disrupting the rest of the network that constitute it, um, that constitute these identities. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, uh, not as pragmatic as as you might have. Like the most pragmatic advice I have is, is put the words in quotation marks if you write them, um, or try and think differently, which is such a vague and difficult concept. Um, uh, but yeah, it, that that's about that's that. It's a very like we are only. At, on, at the theoretical beginnings of this still, even after so many years, that it's very difficult to see these in practice because we are still struggling with things that are so old. So, so the problems that we are struggling in the world are so old. We are still struggling with the same old boring problems that we think we have solved for the hundredth time already. Um, so it's very difficult to, to, to move on to new things because the, the previous um, problems or the, the problems, the rest of the network, I almost want to say, still constitutes mm. gender. Yeah, and I think this is why the conversation is so important and continuing to talk about the, almost like the impossibility, but the possibility of the problems. And in one area, we tend to kind of choose conversations that kind of, go in a circle and they're about themselves it's about having the conversation so that these shifts can start happening so that the network can be influenced and more people can think about um what is your gender i mean i i, I know that the community that i come from in rosenville that's such a tiny community um is not necessarily thinking about this at all so getting just these kind of questions on the radar of enough people so that we can transcend the language and thinking structure um, 
is going to require this kind of conversation of uh, I mean, mm. how does it look like practically? Because that is the question that I get from my parents over and over when I try to speak to them. Yeah. They're like, well, that, I mean, it just doesn't fit into the understanding because what, how do we even speak about it then anymore? It's, it's this um, it's a very big problem, but a very interesting place to be at. I think. Mm. And I think, but, that, oh, sorry, Paul. Um, oh, no, I just, I just wanted to, to reply to that, the, the thinking of a small community, I just had this image in my mind of um, this definitely completely um, uh, genderqueer person, visually genderqueer person, strolling down the streets of this, of this small rural town, and everyone hanging out the doors and thinking, what? That's that person. How does this work? Like that. <laughs> Who? Sorry. Ati Pataruga did a performance like that. Oh. South African artist where he covered his entire body in these latex, colorful balloons, and he had these big, like when he speaks quite tall, so he had like, uh, or not, well, he wore very high high heels, um, and strolled through the t his town of origin, and basically confronted people with this ambiguity mm. of his his um, sexuality and expression where they and it was a very interesting like you said like a, a very very interesting visual to see him stroll through this rural yeah but then then what happens is how does that turn into a societal change how does that the image the agitprop of this person challenging people and creating an awareness of their conception of gender how does that turn into an actual change in their conception of gender or the questioning of the conception of gender and then societal change. It's about people talking to each other about this. But the thing that prevents us from talking to each other about this is, of course, the social, um, the fear of social rejections and, and so on and so on. But, but the reason why we have that social fear of re rejection and the reason why we don't want to talk to our parents about um, us being queer or us being, um, or, or even someone else being queer is because we fear um, rejection by them, yes, but the social rejection, the, the reason why we have that fear, I think, biologically, as we can say, is because we, we have a fear of for our own survival. We want to be able to still keep on depending on these people that we depend on for our psychological but also material well-being. And I think that the way that we can create the, the again, the, this is a problematic term, but the basis for that conversation, those conversations, and thus the basis for the societal change is by making sure that people have the material um, safety net to be able to exit damaging situations, which is obviously something that that I keep on telling everyone is is what we need to to stop gender-based violence. It's not more prison term, a lot of prison terms. But um, but uh, more opportunities for people to to develop psychologically, also, but also for women to exit situations, abusive situations that they are reliant upon um, for their own survival. And then in that same way, if we create the material bases, the, the material conditions for someone to be able to to continue and survive um, materially, but also psychologically, um, outside of dependence on um, toxic or abusive or just problematic or etc. People, um, we can 
make it easier for people to have these conversations and thus create social change. So I, I think it's, that's kind of where I, I would like to leave us with, with a dual, we can agitate in the superstructure um, by getting people to, to think of things differently and, and getting people to, to treat each other differently and, and all these things that, that, that are more, um, that are more vague, more, that aren't, that aren't necessarily um, physical, but then on the other side, again, this dual motion, we must create the opportunities for people to comfortably and safely have conversations that would otherwise be incredibly awkward and, and sometimes even dangerous. Mm. And I think in, in ending that, I'm almost circling back to the name of your uh, podcast that is coming. I like the idea of praxis because praxis refers, if I'm correct, to it's this morphing of of theory and the practical and i think yes. I, was, I almost um got i got annoyed with myself for asking like for being the one to prompt that question what can we do practical and it's because a part of me knows that that is what listeners and people want to hear but i think the important thing mm -hmm. to emphasize now is that uh, our understanding of that by conceptually thinking these things through trying to have this dual thing of creating the material environment, the theory and the practical inform one another. And that's why these conversations are important. And the last point I want to make is that's why I am so thankful for the amount of artists and performance artists that are helping us with this task. Because I think that the people that we've referenced are those people inserting themselves in those towns, making themselves vulnerable, taking that risk, risk, but at the same time, working towards creating those material environments that you spoke of. Um, and I am hopeful that the work you are doing and this conversation that we are having in some small way also contribute to that. Yeah, so I'm very thankful to have just learned so much today yeah. from this conversation and to air out this concept that I think is so topical and interesting and necessary to talk about. Absolutely. And I wanted to say one more thing about maybe something practical. Um, I listened to a podcast episode on a movie that was made in Kenya about um, bubblegum Afro, was it? Now I can't remember. Um, Afro pop, but it was, there was also like bubblegum something in it. Um, but the, the basis of the story was that this um, director created a plot where uh, a lesbian couple um, ended up happily happy and then to be able to enter for awards um, overseas the movie had to be screened in their country and then the Kenyan government rejected the movie um, and said that they will screen it again or stop the ban if the end is changed to make the end seem a little bit more um, like doom and, tragic yes tragic and and it made me think and, and, and it is also the conversation we had earlier in this season with Valeria about how we cannot be what we cannot see um, and and also creating uh, practical ways to create stories where people that are different again back to Orlan's idea of creating difference as accepting difference so creating mm. different stories as a way to accept different stories and to to create different stories with different kinds of endings and happy endings as well because 
people have historically been typecast in very specific roles and even with gender, the way that it plays out in our media and how we perpetuate it through the stories that we tell is also something to be aware of. So if you are creating something or you are a creative, to really investigate what you are perpetuating and what kind of endings you are writing and for what kind mm. of people your stories um, are, are creating kind of examples of, of how they can live. Um, I think is also a, a practical point that creative people can investigate. Are you thinking of Rafiki? Yes, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, they sh showed it at, at Pulp Rest in Peace um, last year, I think. I saw there's a petition going on, by the way. But let we let us for the archives just note the sad thing that they want to close Pulp. I think it's Yes, <laughs> shun uh, all who try to do that on this pu public platform. <laughs> <laughs> we denounce you. <laughs> but uh, Paul, if there's any closing thoughts, something you want to leave, I think you, you did leave people with a very hopeful, uh, yeah, and, and I do think it's very practical to think of this pushing from the inside and like pulling from the outside idea. Um, it's very interesting and, and thank you so much from our side for for being here and for spending some time with us talking about this. So if there's anything you want to close with, you're welcome to also plug yourself if you want. <laughs> oh, yeah, thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll make a little reading list, I thought, um, to, uh, with links to the, the texts. Um, that we mentioned and and other further reading stuff and I'll, I'll put that on my on my website mm -hmm. um, which is pauljay.tk um, I'll send you the link of that so you can put it in the, in the description stuff um, otherwise um, yeah thank you for for hosting me and and thank you also for your for your provocative questions and, and ideas as well um, I think that the idea that the, the dual motion is, is something that, that we can keep in mind. Um, that's a very Hegelian note to end on, but um, always a good note. That the, to end on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe we can we can think of things in in terms of processes and think of the cybernetic interaction between different components um, and, and how we are cyborgs. So. Just that, that as a summary, perhaps, to leave people on. Thank you for listening to Eret Podcast. You can find all our social links in the description. And we appreciate any support or donations. It can be in the form of word of mouth, supporting us on Patreon or liking our content on Instagram. Uh, so be sure to also check out our social media. Everything is linked in the show notes below. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode and remember, stay stimulated. stimulated.